Welcome back to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brand. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that connects people who are struggling with mental health or weight. See, that's why I got a notification. I don't understand why do not disturb does not mean do not disturb. I should have no notifications and it's still popping up. I'm not going to do all that. This is this is this is my life. It's just constant notifications. <laughs> Unless I mute them or just walk away from my phone. But like I do everything on my phone. Like I, it's it's work. It's uh, the social media stuff. It's the speaking to people. It's my family, friends. Uh, last week I looked and um, it had twelve hours of screen time. Now mind you, if I record a podcast, however long I'm recording, the screen has to stay open, right? So that time contributes to my average daily use of screen time. So that aside, let's say I do three podcast uh, recordings in a week, and then I have to upload it and set the phone down. I would say like I'm on my phone probably a solid nine hours a day because I record the videos of uh, when I'm working out. I'm texting, making sure people are coming to the gym. Yeah, it's a lot. So... The do not disturb function, uh, it it should do more. It should be like, no, do not disturb. If someone calls me twice, I think that it should go through. Because someone told me that they had it set up that way. But I'll figure it out. This is a one-off situation where I just don't have my mic. Um, I'm recording from my home instead of down at the gym uh, because it's cold. <laughs> I'm going to be flat out with you. You remember last time, last recording we did, uh, I was ready to go because it was just cold. Uh, anyway... Yeah, something for positive for positive people is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that connects people who are struggling with herpes stigma to mental health resources. All right, so now we left off part one of this episode, Black Minds Matter, which I'm glad you like the title. I don't know where it came from. It was just like, damn, you know, this is a very good, powerful conversation that we were transitioning into. But I was also, on top of being cold, worried about the cutoff time of the recording app that I use. Turns out I can go over an hour. Didn't know that before. So um, this podcast can be as long as it needs to be for us to make sure that we get all the points across. So um, if you haven't checked out part one, this would be a good time to go back and listen to that. Uh, The episode is 171, Black Minds Matter. And uh, I think the IG live is posted up on HMRChat's Instagram. And then this one will be released whenever I get a chance to listen through, take some notes and edit out any of the dead spaces, likes, ums, and anything else that I don't like. Or if you might have said your name. So let's not do that this time. (laughs) I didn't catch it, though. You said that you said your name, but I I didn't catch it or I didn't understand it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's pick up where we left off. We were last speculating at the end of episode 171, part one. We were speculating about, from your perspective, it was uh, black people having to seem perfect in slavery, in times of slavery, so as to be useful, right? And then me looking at it from the other end of the spectrum, it's like it was a defense mechanism. So let's say the mom... um, has a 13, 14 year old black boy, right? To us, that's a boy, but to perhaps the plantation owners, to the white people, that looked like a grown ass man, 
just little whiskers start growing in. You see some facial hair, a little bass in their voice, that growth spurt. And so that kid being a kid is seen as an adult doing something childish or whatnot and what they shouldn't be doing. And then the parents have to protect their kids. So how do you go about doing that? You have to do what you got to do. You know, that's the whole thing of survival. So if that means talking down to your kid, if that means calling them stupid and hitting them in front of the plantation owners and everybody else and telling them, hey, you ain't got no sense. You don't know no better. That's a, And having to consistently do that so that that person stays under the radar and gets a little bit more grace from the, from society to status quo, so to speak, that's all we got. And again, you know, it's about survival. It's not, we're not really, at that point in time, we're not given any opportunities. When opportunities didn't exist. We just had to do what we had to do to make it to the oh, next right. day. Treated 
dramatically different, you know, with the medications um, that are prescribed for people with schizophrenia, totally different than with people like myself who have bipolar disorder. I mean, even I was misdiagnosed initially. Um, I was originally diagnosed with just having bipolar disorder. Um, they didn't know where I fell on the spectrum, if you will. And I was prescribed um, an antidepressant, which unfortunately caused me to go into a raging, angry, manic episode. Because I, it turns out I have mixed episode bipolar disorder. But the psychiatrist who evaluated me originally, she just didn't pay attention to all that. She just said, oh, you got bipolar, here's some antidepressants, which I found out when I was hospitalized that that wasn't even appropriate to give me in the first place at all. <laughs> yeah, what? <clears throat> what was implied with that? Like that bipolar people are depressed? Well, at the, you know, when I think about when I was initially, uh, when I was initially diagnosed, I was in IOP, uh, in, intensive outpatient uh, care or program, if you will. And uh, while there, it's, um, it's like a month to a month and a half of treatment where you have you can leave, but you have to come back and go to classes like about like four times a week. And so when I was there, when I was being evaluated, um, I guess she just said, okay, well, I'm evaluating her, and it seems like right now she's in a depressive episode, so we're just gonna give her antidepressants and see how that goes. And then, and then they gave me uh, Seroquel at a low dose for sleep. Come to find out, after I go into this raging manic episode, you know, where now I'm having, you know, thoughts of hurting others, and then I end up in this altercation where I actually almost ended up hurting somebody. I uh, took myself to the uh, emergency room and uh, they medically cleared me because sometimes like stuff can be going on with your health physically that can cause psychiatric symptoms but once they medically cleared me um, they were evaluating me and then that's when they sent me to the psychiatric facility and so while there I got evaluated by another psychiatrist and, and he was I say this because it, it really makes a difference he was a Polish man and the way that they look at um, psychiatrics is totally different than, um, I guess you would say, your standard American psychiatrist. And so he really talked to me about like my history, like with my family, really got to know me, uh, even though I was in a, uh, a state of poor judgment, <laughs> he was able to see past all that. And he asked me questions about like my family history as far as relationships were concerned. Um, asked me about my childhood. Asked me about uh, things that have to do with manic symptoms, like how was my sleep as a kid, um, uh, depressive moods. Um, uh, did I ever find myself being extra sad as a kid? You know, and then just going through all of that. Um, there was even a point of my life where. Um, I wasn't like on drugs, but I was kind of like experimenting uh, with drugs. Um, I had took ecstasy. So instead of judging me about that, you know, oh my God, you shouldn't take ecstasy. He's like, well, how did it make you feel? What was the effect? And when I got to explain how it made me feel, that that also put into perspective how 
how I am when I'm mad. And then after evaluating all that, he came to the conclusion that I most definitely shouldn't have been put on antidepressants. That I was actually bipolar with mixed episodes, which is in itself kind of rare. Uh, a lot of times you'll either be bipolar where, you know, you have manic episodes, you have a depressive episode. But with me, I experienced them either at the same time or really close together. And so that can turn into angry, raging rampages. <laughs> so he, he, what he did was he took me off the antidepressant and the medication I was on for sleep, Seroquel, he actually raised the dosage to a mood stabilizer. So the woman had me, the first psychiatrist had me on Seroquel and um, as a sleeping aid, when in reality she should have had it at a higher dose for a mood stabilizer. And so once they did that, um, the things started going on the up and up. Uh, I had to change that medication later, but it just goes to show you, like, you, you, when, you, when you try to do the right thing, when you try to go to a medical professional, like, that all of that could have discouraged me to just give up on it all. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm not even going to deal with this ridiculous island because I wasn't even into taking uh, medication, but I was trying to be responsible. I was trying to do what the doctor say, and then it ended up doing more harm than good. Yeah, and then so, yeah. The, the unnecessary barriers there that are in place don't have to be. And a barrier can be intentional, it can be unintentional. Perhaps it was unintentional that you, someone bipolar with manic episodes, the upper manic, uh, the uh, the upper type of uh, bipolar, right, is given antidepressants. So anti-downers is what I'm hearing. So this didn't help. Shit. What was the correlation there? And so it, it makes us challenge and question the healthcare industry in terms of how much are they investing in us? How much do they value us? How much do they really know? Like, where is the trust? We have seen over and over again how hard it is to trust that the process is going to suit us. You know, you look at even the social justice system. How often has that let us down? And you just keep telling us, oh, trust it, trust it, trust it. No, <laughs> that's, that's very challenging. And another interesting thing that's going to come up is with the COVID vaccines right now, how are black people going to reply or respond to that? I know some people who have gotten it. I know some people who ain't touching it. And I know some people who are on the fence. So it'll be really, you know, something that we got to observe as we move forward, like looking at these kinds of things and asking questions, what's in it, what's going to happen to me, what's happened to other people with it. But if we aren't even given the bare minimum basic tools of, you know, uh, <clears throat> equitable I'm, I want to say equality but I think I'll mean equity we're not given like good health equity and I say that like it's not both. yeah it's okay okay because I, I mixed it up and I don't want to say the wrong shit but um no it's an it's economic and equality you know it's both okay so being able to have education to have resources to be able to go to the doctor because that's another thing another barrier is even going to the doctor at all because what if you don't have health insurance that's expensive and now that impacts your livelihood 
Can you afford to go to the doctor or can you afford to stay sick for a little bit longer, figure out what it is, but still make it to work every day and have your paycheck, pay the rent and pay for the bills that need to be paid and pay for groceries to take care of you and your family. So people aren't realizing that these are real life day-to-day -day decisions that people have to make. If I'm coughing, oh shit, I don't want to go and get a COVID test. So let me zip my shit up, keep my mask on and like hold my costs until it gets so bad that it's something physical or you just can't hide it anymore. Then you got to go. Then you got to miss however much of work. And people are deathly afraid of that because the opportunities yeah. that are out there, the jobs that are out there, we can't afford to miss work. We can't afford to have to call in sick. We may not even be able to call in sick. We can't take vacation time. Right. And like, it's, it just, it continues to get it deeper and deeper the more we start to explore it. Brings up, that brings up a good point, too, uh, in terms of standards in general, not just for our physical health, but also for our physical health. The idea of what it means to be a man is completely different for men versus black men, right? And looking at the obstacles that are there, like how many obstacles are there in the way of men being men versus black men having to live up to the standards of what it means to be a man? Uh, Let's Talk Bruh is a podcast that's on black masculinity. And if anyone is interested in checking it out, I think that the host Jeremy does a damn good job of giving us tools in place in order to help us navigate that. me or 
record, and I looked at my notes, and I was classified as being well-groomed. There was nothing about me that was well-groomed when I went in at all. So, he, so all right, so... Now, let me ask you this. So, if you're being evaluated by white doctors and they were to have said you weren't well-groomed, how would that have made you feel? Like they were paying attention. Oh. When you're, when you're, a lot of times we don't want to, we want to be in denial about our state. And that goes back to the conversation that we had in the last episode. You know, that, that always happens to be presenting as perfect. You know what I'm saying? Or being presented as okay. Oh, somebody asked you how you're doing. Oh, I'm fine. When in reality, you're drowning from, you know, the neck up, and you just don't know where your next break is going to come. You know, when you're honest with yourself, and you know the state that you're in, and you can be real with yourself, if they would have said on that paperwork, oh, yeah, disheveled, um, not well groomed, poor hygiene, I would have been like, yeah, they were paying attention. There was no way they should have came up with well groomed with the way I was looking. Yeah. But, no but we got so much style, you know what I'm saying? Like all the versatility and how we do yeah. things about ourselves. That's true, but there's a difference between like you think of you think of our hair in our natural state, right? There's a difference between matted and purposely styled. You think of dreads, right? Dreads, they, you have free-forming dreads, and then you have dreads that are, uh, I guess you could say. Uh, <laughs> It's dangerous. You might harm yourself right. with it, right? I might harm myself. I might harm others. But I mean, hell, it's no different than the toothbrush they gave me. Yeah, that's true. Leave me alone with that long enough. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so uh, they gave me shampoo, no conditioner. And, and then it took an Asian man looking at my hair. And he was like, oh, yeah, you need conditioner. And I'm like, thank you. You have that? Can I get some of that, please? Like, yeah, so, it sounds like you were in a prison or jail or something. I mean, you know, now that I think about it, I've never said it on here. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't say it that way either, but I, I just never had a reason to. It, it fits. You good. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's what was happening. You know, he kept calling me a nigger. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I'm going to go to the bathro
deal with um, uh, uh, just the other patients. That's what can be hard because everybody's in there for a different reason. While I felt like I totally belonged there, um, you know, you have to kind of be prepared to go. Because I, I, I took myself voluntarily. You know, imagine people who have to go into there involuntarily. Um, I was able to pack a bag, you know, and, and this is what I recommend for a lot of people. When you're honest with yourself and you know it's time to go to the hospital, you have a bag ready, you pack it, you know where you want to go, and then have a plan. That gives me... That gives me the idea that it gives you a sense of control. This is your choice. You're making the choice to do it. And when you get there, the you're prepared, as prepared as you can be, because you thought ahead, you made a plan, you packed the bag. Right. That is totally true. When I was in IOP, they had us make what was called a wrap plan. And in your wrap plan, you have where you have signs of breaking down when things are kind of going to the wayside but they're not out of control yet and then you have a, a page of symptoms when you know it's starting to get a little out of control and then you have what's called a crisis plan to where okay if I have to go into the hospital this is the people that I need to know that I'm in the hospital these are the people who are allowed to contact me these are the people who are not allowed to contact me uh, this is the facility that I want to go to you know, because, I mean, there's been, I, I know people who have been just taken to random facilities. And that's what happened to me the first time. But I actually ended up in a good one that I would like to return to should I ever have to go to a facility again. And so I added it to my rap plan. Um, it's just, it's a really good thing to have. And so when I was in there, I had my rap plan with me. And I was able to contact the people, because, you know, who, who memorizes numbers these days? say these things I, I want to be able to uh, talk to my aunt about this I mentioned my aunt in the last episode who's diagnosed bipolar schizophrenic and uh, I don't see that she had any of this like these these tools that you're expressing are things that give me perhaps what I need to support someone who's going through mental health challenges to be able to say all right here's what we need to do whereas we're not, we're not given that. The healthcare providers send the person 
who has the the mental wellness issue off with their medication, their instructions, but then the family, the support system, I don't know if you know anyone close to my aunt was given specific instructions or signs of here's when they're stable, here's when they're not. If they aren't, here's a plan that needs to be in place for them. I would just know that yeah. there were times where my dad would have to go and get my aunt from the hospital and we wouldn't know anything that led up to that. And then when we get her back home, it was just a matter of seeing, looking around the place and seeing that some shit happened. We don't know what, something happened though. So my question to you is, as someone, whether it be a relative, whether it be a friend, a friend or a, um, a partner, how does someone who ebbs and flows mentally receive support from someone else that's close to them? How do you date someone who is struggling with mental health challenges? How do you be there for them? How do you love them? How do you take care of them? And how do you support them in a way that works for everybody and isn't making them feel like they can't take care of themselves or making me as a uh, as a supporter feel like this isn't going anywhere? So you know, that's a really good question. And um, I think it starts off with evaluating how healthy your relationships are. If you have somebody who is uh, like a relative, I just use myself as an example. My mom is a toxic relationship in my life, so she's just not a part of my support group. Um, <laughs> and so you have to be able, as a person who would need the support, be able to first evaluate who are the healthy people in my life. And then what you do is you go to those people and say, hey, I trust you, I think that you're a healthy relationship in my life, and uh, this is what I need from you if you ever notice X, Y, and Z. Because everybody's different. Uh, with myself, you know, um, uh, a, a sign, there are signs and uh, I won't always say symptoms, because uh, as somebody who is very good at hiding their symptoms to appear normal, <laughs> And stable symptoms are not always going to be what you look for it's always sometimes the little things and so it's just being honest with yourself and knowing okay this is what's happening with me when I'm at my breaking down point and sharing those things with the people who you trust so that they when they see you and they interact with you um, they know what to look for and then also giving them the permission to ask you because there are some people who get offended when you say have you been on your meds are you taking your medication you know, and if they're comfortable with you asking that, then you can most definitely uh, do that. Just be like, hey, how's it going? How are you feeling? And then have that conversation. When it comes to an actual plan of action, like say the person ends up in a manic episode, then that comes to a point where this plan needs to be written down. And then your support system needs to know where to locate this plan. Okay, I keep it in my top drawer by my bed. If, if I ever, if you find me somewhere in a corner and I'm not able to communicate for myself, I need you to go grab that plan and look and figure out what the next steps are. Yeah. Where I want to go, what medication I need to take, uh, what what the plan is, you know, where my bag is. So if I, if I am involuntarily um, admitted into the hospital, at least you know where my already packed bag of stuff is and you can bring it to me at the yeah. It's just it's 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 
I will, uh, I'm, I, I'm a kind of person that checks in every day. Um, hey, how you doing? Or I'll say goodnight every night. And if I don't, by the next day, he's like, are you okay? How are you feeling? Is everything good? You know, he's on top of it because he gets concerned because he wants to make sure that I'm okay. And I welcome that. And I tell him that um, I appreciate that. And uh, it's, it's, as far as dating, it can be a thing where you just, that's probably the one person who needs to know the most. Because if you're going to be spending that intimate time together, they really need to know the ins and outs of your needs, the ins and outs of your behavior, the ins and outs of, of how you are when you're in a certain state. Because different mental illnesses uh, warrant different things. So, yeah. And then as family, just not being that person who's judging them. You know, if you notice a family member is going through a hard time, you know, don't tell them, well, you need to relax or. You know, don't say just calm down because it's not that easy. It's really not. My parents didn't even, um, they were in full denial of my uh, diagnosis when I disclosed to them. I told them, hey, um, I, we had a sit down meeting and I told them flat out that I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Uh, you ain't got no bipolar. You're not bipolar. They didn't believe me until I had an episode at the house. And then when I had a whole episode at the house, then they're like, okay, yeah, something's wrong. Yeah, that something is bipolar disorder. I told you. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, just being able to let that person know that you care, that you want what's best for them, and you want to be a part of their support system so that they know they can trust you. Somebody should be able to call you up and say, you know what, I haven't taken a shower in three days without you judging me. What's going on? What's happening? They should be able to call you and say, well, I'm having thoughts of hurting other people. And thoughts of hurting other people is not always targeted. I get that a lot because um, somebody might ask me, oh, are you having thoughts of hurting others? And I'll say, yeah. And then their next question is, well, who do you want to hurt? It's not an issue of who. It's not a target. I don't have one person in my mind who I'm planning to target. For me personally, what it happens to be is it's whoever is in my immediate presence becomes the subject of the thought. And so don't just automatically assume that they're a threat. You know, just because you're having the thoughts of hurting others doesn't mean you're actually going to act on them. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, there were a few things. I felt like I was waiting on my turn in double dutch. I was like, ah, 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 but I didn't want to cut you off because you, you were going in. Um, with those kinds of tools, with that language, um, it seems like we would be so much better capable of navigating the extremes. Um, and when I say extremes, I mean the diagnoses, the clinical diagnosis as a community. And I, I'm not saying this as all black people don't recognize mental health issues. I'm saying this from a place of, it took for my furthering my own self-education after I got herpes, to start to pursue better sex education, to understand that this sex education information is also intertwined with social justice issues, consent, um, talking about sex education, the medical community, the history of it, and of course, systemic racism, white supremacy. I didn't uh, understand that all of this stuff was interconnected until I began self-educating. So with yeah. my self-education and being able to elevate this topic of discussion here, 
I still don't feel like this is me doing enough and I don't necessarily know how to expand beyond that because I know that my mom, my grandparents, my dad, his grandparents all had this collective belief and would say the same phrases that I, I mentioned last episode of someone being retarded, someone being slow, someone being um, crazy or weird because they were doing things that expressed a need for help. And then how does that feel as the the provider, the parent, the guardian to know that someone is recognized by others as needing special help or having special needs and then for you to not be able to do anything about it because you don't have health insurance, you don't have access to the resources, you don't have the information to know that, hey, this is a sign, this is a red flag. You don't know what questions yeah. to ask. You don't know who to uh, reach out to that you can trust because of the distrust in the medical community. So you tell them shit like, go outside and play. Are you just bored? Or you smack them upside the head because they keep doing shit that they should know better than to do because you smacked them upside the head the last time they did that stupid shit, right? And I'm using air quotes for anyone who can't see me right now as I say these things that are obviously terrible. But <clears throat> we just really do not know. And I have the luxury and the privilege of being able to continue to self-educate. Whereas a lot of the people around me, a lot of people that came from where I came from don't have that. And I don't know what I can do as someone who is immediately impacted by this. I see it. Um, I remember one of the things that I was going to say to you was when I was 20, I was in college. I might have been 21. And I had an ex-girlfriend make a reappearance into my life. And so we hang out over a weekend and things are looking like they're on the right track of us perhaps pursuing something together. Don't know what. Um, and she leaves and goes home and she calls me and she's like, all right, what are we? And it's like, whoa, we just started talking, you know, like we just reconnected. Yeah. And at the end of it, I was like, well, let's see what happens. It's like if I have to like choose between dating you and not dating you right this second, I'm going to choose with not dating you, obviously, because whatever, whatever. There were 100% points leading up to that conversation that I should have been able to recognize and say, there's something wrong here. I didn't know what. I knew that she was someone who was sick often. Um, whatever sick means, she would just say, I'm sick. There was no language around it. She didn't feel good. She was sick. Um she left me a voicemail the night that we ended up having that conversation over the phone and something inside me was like, that's not right. It was long. I didn't like the tone of her voice and it was very you, 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 you. And it wasn't like accusatory. I don't feel like it made me angry or anything. It made me feel like something was just wrong. And so I acted on that and I called the uh, suicide lifeline back at this point in time. And I didn't know her address. I just knew her first and last name because she wasn't answering the phone when I was calling her. I was texting her, couldn't get in touch with her. And so they were able, I described where her house was. They were able to get there. And I guess they got there in time because a few hours later, her brother had ended up calling me and he sounded like in shock. And he just said, thanks, like, thank you. 
So she was in the tub. She had a bunch of pills. She was making an attempt to end her life. And I didn't recognize things leading up to this to give support, to offer help. Um, and yeah, I got to live my life. So if I had known that this was where it was going to lead, I probably would have been like, okay, yeah, let's be together as a result, you know, thinking that I'm saving her life or helping her if I knew that that was where it was leading. But it would have more so helped to have had these, this understanding, this self-education to know how to better navigate that conversation or to know what kind of support to give her or what kind of resources I needed to point her in the direction of. So like as a survivor of suicide, because there have been other people around me who have also ended their lives, it's very, it, 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 I think that that's partially why I do what I do through something positive for positive people. And it's been unfortunate that through the shitty experiences of other people, I now have this blueprint of what to watch out for, what to be mindful of. But it's also such a blessing because now I'm able to take in the perspectives of, at this point, probably tens of thousands of people to identify particular patterns of, okay, you need help right now. Oh, you just need me to listen to you. Oh, you need me to connect you to a support group. You just need a friend. And I have all of this now to draw from, but not everybody has that privilege. Not everyone is able to have their phone on them all day and see through notifications and talk to everybody that reaches out to them and filter in what it is that they're doing without having to sacrifice their income or time away from family or basic survival needs. And I recognize that. So, or their own mental stability. Huh? Yeah, I see. Or even their own mental stability. You know, um, I had a, 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 my ex-boyfriend, uh, he would often uh, have moments where he would threaten suicide. And I found myself being a suicide hotline dispatch to him all the time. And it became emotionally and mentally draining. And then for somebody like me, who's already dealing with my own stuff, at the time, I, I didn't know that I was, um, you know, bipolar or whatever. But it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to talk him off the ledge all the time, and I'm not mentally stable myself. Oh, that's what you meant. And so, and it, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or, or even somebody who is mentally stable, but if you're constantly being, um, being a... Uh, Jesus. Um, exposed. Okay. You know, if you're constantly being exposed to that type of situation, no matter how strong you are, there's always going to come a point where it's going to become too much, and you have to protect your own self and your own mental capacity. That could be emotionally and mentally draining. So let me ask you this, because this has been something that popped up in my mind as we were talking. Being there for other people in the way that someone can be and constantly taking in the negative emotions and thoughts and statements of other people. Um, that's, that's how I'm learning. And I don't see, perhaps I'm not seeing how it's impacting me negatively because in my mind, all right, people come to me this way and then they leave another way. Like maybe they leave a little hopeful, a little hyped up or a little just less hurt than they were when they came. I am learning that energy is not created or destroyed. It is transferred. So in that, in that sense, <laughs> I question, damn, all right, if I'm taking all of this shit in, how is it coming out or how is it, 
How am I transferring it? Is it, in fact, 100% being transferred into these conversations, these podcast recordings, the uh, creation of something positive for positive people and all of the resources that come along with that? Or is it somehow draining me in a way that I'm not able to see until I'm drained, until I just look up one day and I'm depressed or I look up one day and I'm having suicidal thoughts or I look up and I just lash the fuck out because all this time I've been giving people what they need and no one's been giving me what I need. And that would be how I feel. So I think that uh, that that's something that has crossed my mind before. And I think that I have a way of taking care of it, but I don't have a way of really identifying it in myself. People around me, even, you know, I'm just I'm just always there. So like maybe if I disappear is that when people are going to think something's wrong, but actually that's when things are going right or what is, is it's really yeah. challenging for me to navigate that for myself. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of ways I can approach that question. Oh, first. Damn. That was a question. Makes- if you found a question in all of that, you real. Yeah. <laughs> me up not gonna lie right yeah said that like I just I was gonna say I just had this this pull when you said that if I couldn't talk somebody off the ledge because I don't know how I would ever find out that I didn't talk somebody off the ledge or that I didn't uh, that I kept someone from killing themselves and when you said that it's triggering the deep-rooted trauma 
that might be it for me because this whole something positive for positive people shit started because people wanted to kill themselves. And I think back to some early childhood trauma with hearing relatives, close relatives say that they wanted to kill themselves. And then having extended family having done it, I have a very nasty relationship with suicide. It's one of the things that probably angers me more than anything else is when people say that they want to take their lives. I understand that you know, that's not the right thing to say, but that's just unfortunately how I feel about it. Um, and nobody can invalidate those feelings, right? So I don't think that's the wrong thing to say though. Oh, okay. Um, well that that's what I that's what I've heard or read. Let me say that I've read this that, you know, well, it's my reason for being angry. Let me say that, because I consider this to be perhaps the most or one of the more selfish things that a person can do. And so that is what angers me. So perhaps maybe it's not suicide, but selfishness is angering. But I, I don't I don't think that it's selfish. I think that it's the uh, I don't think that it's selfishness. I think that it is, in fact, suicide, just considering everything around that, like everything that happens when the person removes themselves from their life. And I understand I I logically comprehend it. But if this is, in fact, my deep-rooted trauma and trigger, then I understand that as well. And that's what's the priority to me. It's, you know, the um, the whole thing about, I don't like suicide, here's what I'm going to do about it. And so, thinking that somebody that reaches out to me that, let's say, they reach out to me outside of my window of time where I'm responding to messages and... I go back and I reply and they just don't say anything. I probably will never know that unless I think to myself, oh, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. And I go back and their page is gone or some shit like that. And I've had people that's happened a few times and they've been okay. And I've never really been scared, but I, I think about when I take breaks from social media and how much anxiety I have. I have more anxiety not being accessible than I do being accessible. Yeah, and uh, oh, okay, good. I'm like, I'm practicing being a good listener. <laughs> but like, so much I was thinking about as you were talking. About oh, this. let it out. And and so there's two things. You know, one as far as like your anger or frustration with suicide, right? Have you ever considered that perhaps what makes you upset is the fact that person even has gotten to a point where they feel like that's their only option. I could say the yeah. circumstances around them have has the circumstances around them have put that in that situation. It's kinda like, well damn, you know, who is in their life? Who is who is looking out for this person? Who is who is their support? Or why is nobody, you know, helping them? It's why right. do they feel like this is their only option? Yeah, it's like who else do I need to come you be? Know. Yeah. <laughs>
talking about, you know, killing himself. And then I have to be the one to talk him off the ledge and how emotionally draining it is. And my pastor was like, look, you're not a professional. <laughs> you need to refer him to the suicide line. You need to give him the resource. If he hits you up with, oh, I'm feeling this, that, and the third. Okay, here's a suicide um, hotline. And so perhaps putting that up on your social media or putting that up on your website or putting that somewhere where it's accessible when you're not would maybe alleviate some of your anxiety on that. Because I can understand that. Because I was there, you know, if I missed a text from him or if I missed a phone call from him and he was talking about being on the ledge, I would drop everything. And it became a problem in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I would drop everything mm-hmm. just to take care of him. And really, ultimately, it, it, it sounds messed up. But once, like I said, it gets past a certain point of being helpful, then you have got to refer that person to a professional. Yeah. Even if it's suggesting, okay, well, maybe you need to go to the hospital. Maybe you need to call the suicide prevention line. Maybe you need to make an appointment with your therapist. There comes a point now, in hearing you say this, there comes a point where you're enabling behavior or you're enabling the self-destruction versus, um, what was the other word I was thinking? It was another word versus giving them the help. Like you're either giving them the help or you're enabling them. So being there and constantly being there for people might be enabling them to not help themselves. Whereas handing them the resource and then walking away may be the exact thing that they need in order for them to help themselves. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I want to just close out here uh, with a big ass thank you, first off, for coming here and turning what we thought was just going to be an episode about herpes and dealing with uh dealing with the uh bipolar disorder into a lesson um me being able to speak to the experiences that I have I hope having this exchange between us is something that will encourage black people for sure, to be receptive to having this dialogue with one another. You also said something uh, where you mentioned like not being seen as when you went into the, uh, the, the facility for treatment, they said that you were well-groomed or whatever they said. I immediately had a visceral reaction of all right, well, if I walked in there and they said that to me, like, I would be like, how the fuck would you know? Like, this is how my hair always looks. You don't know my hair like looks like this. And I guess that kind of response lets you know that someone would need help. Now that I'm saying it out loud, if their physical appearance is definitely not on par, but like you look at people who sag, they could come in perfectly well-dressed as being someone who's black, maybe clothes a little baggy, but in our community, this is like flashy and stylish, right? And, you know, some a few fucked up things like maybe their knuckles are a little bit ashy. So like things that you wouldn't notice unless you are someone who has come from that or been around that to to be able to identify that as a medical care provider. That takes a lot of that takes some real genuine people skills for real, for real. 
Um, but yeah, you, you left me with things to further investigate and explore. And I thank you for holding space and allowing for us to have this kind of dialogue to where you, know, you were able to open up and share about things. And I was able to just open up and share about things um, in a useful way. I feel like this is going to be very useful um, for people to understand. You know, I don't want for white people to hear this and think that trying to help is going to lead to them being yelled at or they're perpetuating any stereotypes or any shit like that or being racist. I want people to hear this and know, hey, you can have a conversation like we're dealing with humans here at the end of the day, whether or not that human has blackness or mental wellness issues or anything else. All that shit don't matter when you see something that's issue an issue or you may think is off address the human. And that's all we really yeah. need to do. All right. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? We got a couple of minutes before uh, I need to stop it. Oh. <laughs> um, just so if you don't practice anything in your life, practice love. Whether that's self-love, whether that's loving others, and, 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 and being able to look beyond what is obvious to a deeper issue. Just open your eyes and see people. Like you said, see the human being in somebody, see them, hear them, understand them, get to know them. And with all that comes love. Thank you so much, Bliss. All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive People. Or, <laughs> that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. You can donate to the organization at www.spfpp.org. And if you're a therapist, a yoga instructor, if you're someone who needs support, if you want to be connected to community, if you want to be uh, interviewed on the podcast. If you have a blog story post that you want to write in that can be shared on the website. And if you're a donor, if you're a media outlet that wants to interview me to uplift our stories and this platform and our community in general, please reach out. Go to www.spfpp.org. And if you go to the contact page, Plage. If you go to the contact page, you will see different options for how to reach out, what to reach out for, and all of that. Uh, I'm getting more into using the website directly. My social media platforms have not been having the reach and engagement that they should, and I know that it's because sex is being silenced in general on social media platforms. I'm still on there at H on my chest if you want to engage, but know that I am going to be spending a lot more of my energy investing in the website and doing things directly and driving people there. So don't be surprised if up one day my pages are gone. You can always still get in contact with me through the website directly. All right. Till next time, stay sex positive.